Welcome to Fast Lane with Sarah Jane, a podcast for women who are on the move, managing life and family. Your host, Sarah Jane, is building a tribe and talking about the things that affect the daily lives of moms. You can expect real conversations about managing chaos, finding ways to take care of mind and body, and stepping outside your comfort zone on the way to living your best life. Hold on for a wild ride. Now, let's get started. Great afternoon. You are in the fast lane with Sarah Jane. And I love to encourage people to be better, do better, and live better on a daily basis. And today I'm excited for my guest because this person has really helped me live better, do better, and be better in my life. And that's why I wanted him to join me, hoping you will also get something out of it. So I would like to welcome Mike Burkhardt, who is in the fast lane with me today. Good afternoon, Sarah. (laughs) So I'm going to just do a real quick synopsis. I can do a actual podcast on what actually happened, but I think six, seven years ago, I had a panic attack, which ended me in the emergency, landed me in the emergency room. And to make a long story short, I decided I didn't need to make some changes. And one of the changes I made was I needed some therapy. And I had had therapy in the past, but nothing real memorable because I still had my panic attack. This is sometimes something people do not want to talk about. They don't want to talk about anxiety or depression or needing therapy. And I think that's baloney because I don't know why we all think we should be able to handle everything on our own. And we aren't responsible for some of the things that we've been through in life. So Mike really, um, I'm going to go with he was a turning point in my life because I'm not perfect by any means, and I still do see Mike um, here and there, but I think that he has really been a pillar for me uh, and my mental health. So thank you, Mike, first of all, for all you have done for me. You're welcome, Sarah. (laughs) Mike is a man of so many words, but Mike, why do you think that people put such a stigma on mental health and getting therapy? Well, I think historically, Seeking therapy has been perceived as a weakness. People thinking they should be able to overcome their own depression, anxiety, or whatever mental illness they're dealing with. But actually, I see it the opposite. I see, I perceive the people who come to me as being very courageous because it takes a great deal of humility to reach out and get help, which is what you did. And... So I have admiration for my clients. And how is it that you, you're, you're a very busy guy and you've done this for several years. How is it that you can detach from everything that you hear on a daily basis? Because I know what you and I talk about and I know there's people who have had a lot of trauma in their lives. How can you handle your own mental health? Well, when it comes to the therapist-client relationship, The one who should be the healthiest is the therapist. So my mental health is number one. So I take very good care of myself physically and psychologically so that when I'm sitting in front of a client, they're getting my undivided attention and are observing someone who's in good mental health. And since I'm dealing with my client's problems, 
uh, by listening and giving my perspective and giving them challenges. Um, I see this as their responsibility that if they're going to agree with the concepts that I teach, I then will hold them responsible for following through. That's my responsibility to hold them accountable, but their pain and suffering and what they have to work through is their problem. And that's how I see it. So there's going to be pain and suffering and making changes. And I want my clients to see that with the right knowledge and overcoming distorted beliefs, distorted perceptions, that they can actually make positive changes. Therefore, if they do the work, they get the credit. If they don't do the work, they keep the pain. That's not my problem. So I'm willing to work with someone who's willing to work through their problems. And I would say that you hold your patients to a high standard. Do you agree? Yes, a mentally healthy standards. I lay out what those standards are and I invite them to try and disagree with me. And if they can't, well, then they're going to agree with me, but they just won't have experience with the knowledge they're agreeing to. So as a cognitive behavioral therapist, my job is to show them how it's done, practice it in therapy, and then challenge them to practice it outside of therapy where it's much more difficult. Mm -hmm. And what I really appreciated about therapy with Mike is that he never one time, and I've known him for quite a while now, he's never asked me, how do you feel about that? And I like that because Mike takes the emotion out of it. He removes the emotion. Not that you can't have emotions, but he removes the emotion from uh, the situation and makes you really think about what's going on. This was huge for me because I used to cry at all the things. All the things used to make me cry. And now I, I really do not cry. In fact, I've been called cold by my husband because I have really been able to shut the emotions down. Do you think that that is a really important aspect of what you teach? Absolutely. Our feelings or emotions come from our perceptions. So if we have unhealthy perceptions where we draw conclusions, we're going to have negative emotions. So I don't go after the emotions, I go after the perceptions or the beliefs. So when I identify a distorted belief, I suggest what the healthy belief is. I encourage my client to be skeptical, to discuss with me if they don't agree with it or what they don't like about it, but that rarely ever happens. And then once they see the logic of the concept, their emotions change. They, they just don't have the negative emotion that they once had because they're looking at it now from a healthier perspective. So change the perceptions, so changes the emotions. And I think that this was huge for me because I used to overanalyze everything, like about what someone would say to me, their tone of what they said it or how I might have responded. And I would replay situations in my head over and over to the point of sometimes making me a little crazy. And I can literally say, I just don't care anymore. And sometimes I have to reflect like, oh, should I care more about this situation? Because I really don't. But I think I'm you know, mentally in a much better place than I ever have been in my life. And I'm 
not done with my mental health because I look at this like an oil change. I came in to have work done, but now I need tune-up. So when I call Mike to schedule, I always say I need a tune-up just because I never want to get back to where I was. Do you think, Mike, that the majority of the population could benefit from therapy or do you think that it is kind of a specific ordeal? Well, I think a majority of the population, Sarah, suffers from insecurity that they never outgrew in their childhood through no fault of their own. Much of this insecurity is generational. The parents don't know they're insecure, so they don't know how they're passing insecurity onto their children. And oftentimes this insecurity manifests itself in being fearful of what other people think, how other people feel, which influences then what that child, now an adult, uh, uh, says in a relationship. And if there's insecurity, one will often care too much what other people think or care too much how someone else might feel because it triggers anxiety in that adult who was very insecure as a child, as all children are, but when that insecurity follows you into adulthood, it really shows up in relationships and will undermine the quality of that relationship. And this happens, I think, in most, most relationships. So when you say a lot of this will start in childhood, you do not work with children. No, I only work with adults. And why? Well, the damage occurs during childhood. Well, when the brain is still developing, all children are appropriately highly insecure and they rely upon the security of the parents to outgrow their insecurity. I can't do much with children because their brain is still developing and the concepts I teach in here are rather abstract and require a cognitively mature brain. So I only take those 18 and over. And when I first started with you, I had to come in and I did a test to begin with and we kind of basically did an interview whether or not that you would take me or not. It, in the past, I've never had to do that. Anyone will just take you and you make an appointment and whatever. What, what is behind your screening process? Uh, my expectations of a good outcome. I don't want to work with someone if I don't think I'm going to get a good outcome. I don't want to work with the semi-motivated. I don't care how miserable they are. Uh, actually, um, misery in my therapy works to my client's advantage because misery often bring, uh, gives my clients humility and motivation to want to change. And I have to see that motivation. I have to see that humility and I have to see that pain. Then we work together on the same goal of getting a good outcome. How often do you see, I know you don't see couples together, but how often do you see a husband and a wife separately? You're right, it's not frequent, Sarah. Um, every now and then a spouse will come through, say the wife, she outgrows a lot of her insecurity. Uh, she is no longer easily intimidated as she once was. She finds her voice. Uh, and because she's less emotionally needy, she can become a better advocate for her wants and needs. Uh, and then the spouse at home sometimes is impressed by the confidence of his wife and starts tapping into his own insecurity that he didn't know he had and wants that security for himself. And then so the husband comes in, but the husband is put through the same um, admission criteria that we, we, I was just talking about. 
And if I don't see the same humility and misery and motivation, I won't take that client on, that spouse on. But usually the spouses do have the same misery, motivation, and uh, desire to change. You have a very strict schedule. Like I saw you three times a week for 10 weeks, right? Uh, make that 12 weeks. 12, 12 weeks. Yeah. Okay. Three so three times a week for 12 weeks. And then after that, we just kind of, we basically weaned off of therapy. And now I call Mike when I think that he needs it or he needs it. Yeah. When you need to see me, Mike, cause I know I'm a joy <laughs> when I need a tune up, um, which, you know, sometimes is like around the holidays or, you know, maybe an anniversary of a, a death of a loved one or, or maybe just because I've had a rough week and I just need um, so, an unbiased source, okay? Because what's nice about Mike is that he's not telling me what I should think or how I should feel, but he's putting it into context. And sometimes when we talk to loved ones, uh, very often they'll say stuff like, you need to do this and you need to do that. And that is always good when someone is telling you what to do, right? <laughs> <laughs> how often do people after they've done the 12 weeks with you how often do they come back after that is am i your typical patient or am i more frequent than your normal patients well i think it looks it works like this when you grow up in a home where there's too much insecurity you're going to learn the unhealthy way of thinking and behaving and when you learn unhealthy way of thinking and behaving, especially in your relationship towards yourself, you're going to get good at it. It'll become habitual. Then when you work your way into my therapy, I teach you the healthy way of thinking and behaving, which is hard to argue with or disagree with, but you, the client has no experience with it. So it takes a lot of practice counteracting habitual dysfunctional thinking and behaving and replacing it with functional, healthy thinking and behaving. And then they go back out into that same environment where there's a lot of negative influence, a lot of insecure people in their family network. Mm -hmm. And it's really difficult to maintain these concepts and not go back to the default of the dysfunctional way of thinking and behaving. So I encourage my clients to come back should they notice regression that they can't stop. Because if they don't correct it, regression will lead to relapse back in to the mental illness that brought them into therapy in the first place. So it's common. Common, yes. Okay. So I'm just trying to digest this because the thing I think that is important is everyone needs to find what therapy works best for them. So some people are going to be listening to this and think, well, I've been doing therapy with the same person for four years and I feel really good. What do you think about that? Like I, again, I've seen you on and off for five plus years, but it's not on a regular basis. If someone is doing therapy on a regular basis for years, do you think there may be a better option for them? Or do you think that maybe is just what they need? Sarah, when you come back to see me, they're more for wellness checks. I mean, you did so much work in therapy. You did so much to counteract dysfunctional ways of thinking and behaving and become a better, a stronger advocate in all relationships. When I see you, it's mainly for 
monitor the progress you're making. Mm -hmm. uh, my goal as a therapist, I want my clients to outgrow me, not become dependent upon me. Mm. So I say this to all my clients, just that, I want to be outgrown. I want you to become more emotionally independent in how you manage stress and how you advocate uh, with other people, especially when it's adversarial. So the, really the purpose of my therapy is learning how to become a better stress manager because chronic stress will cause imbalance in the brain and the imbalance of, of your chemistry in the brain will typically lead to mental illness. And what's the most common mental illness? Clinical depression. And I think what follows clinical depression are anxiety disorders and they can be debilitating. As you have, would have experienced yourself. So in before seeing Mike, I first saw a therapist when I was a junior in high school. And I don't even know how people knew that. But um, someone had phoned out and then they had asked a family member of mine, is Sarah still crazy? And it's funny because I don't even remember who that person was. But at the time, it bothered me so badly. So I got over that hump and decided I don't need this therapy anymore. A few years later, I was on a medication for anxiety, which completely numbed me. And if anyone knows me personally, I am not a numb person at all. I am uh, very energetic and that really kind of sucked the life out of me. So after the panic attack and I was given, I was supposed to take four to five medications like muscle relaxers and anxiety medication and whatnot. I decided I wanted to handle this without that. I do not give medical advice. So if you are on medication and that works for you, you do it. I decided that I needed to fix the root of my problem because I felt like I was just putting a Band-Aid on a bullet wound for years and years and years. I no longer feel like I'm, I'm doing that. I got to the root of my problem. And, you know, everyone has good days and bad days. But... I think it's important for everyone to find what works for them. And Mike does work with people who are on medication as well. This is not something that you just, you know, you don't quit your medication when you see Mike. Mike works with your medical provider as well to make sure what whatever works for you. You know, with, as I just mentioned, chronic stress will throw off the chemistry balance in your brain. And that's where pharmacology comes in. There are some good medications out there. I don't do pharmacology. That's why I refer out to someone else. But certain medications are very good at stabilizing that brain chemistry to help that individual concentrate and to help with the severe depression so that that person isn't so dysphoric, especially during their uh, therapy sessions. And another thing, Sarah, I don't work with crazy people. I've, I've never worked with a crazy client. Crazy is psychosis. Psychosis is out of touch with reality. This behavior is bizarre. These people don't even know what they're doing. They're out of touch. So I don't have clients who are crazy. I work with clients who are miserable and no longer want to be miserable. Hmm, I like that. And I don't think I was ever crazy, but you know, for <laughs> some- I'll validate you weren't. Thank you. But some people think that getting therapy, you are crazy, which is not the case. So I may be accused now of being overly confident or cocky in uh, what I say or what I do. And 
I don't mean to come across as overly confident or cocky, but or arrogant by any means. So the way my mind has shifted from where I was to where I am, how could I describe that to people when they are kind of put off by something I say, or maybe write in my blog? I've written twice now in my blog about being a good mom. And after I wrote the, the last one, I thought, oh yeah, this kind of comes off as, you know, maybe a little much, but that is what I think. So that is what I shared. So how can you put that into words like that? I'm not just too much at this point. Well, I think the struggle here is what is confident and assertive versus arrogant and aggressive. I teach my clients who typically come in on the really their passive side of their personality, where typically they, they're easily taken advantage of and taken for granted by others. And here I teach them how to be assertive, which means being very confident in what they say and how they say it. Now, to someone who's used to them being very passive, that individual may sound aggressive, but it's not. It's assertive. Assertive people are very empathetic. And what I mean by empathetic it has nothing to do with feelings. It just means that they're respectful of that person's right to think and feel differently than them. Whereas someone who's aggressive is really can't be empathetic. It's really their way or no way. So someone who's being aggressive will give their point of view out, but they will not accept your right to have a different point of view than them. Sarah is someone who's very confident in letting her point of view out, but is respectful of the right of that other person to not share her point of view. That's why Sarah would be assertive and not aggressive. Hmm. I like that. And I think that insecurities really show in people when you do have different views and they want to tell you that you're wrong or they want to argue with you. And sometimes that's painful. Yeah, depending upon how they argue with you. If they're not going to respect your right to think differently than them, this is not going to be a very good argument. Uh, it's going to be disrespectful. A good argument is when two people have different ideas but respect the right of others to have those different ideas mm -hmm. and are willing to talk about them. This increases the likelihood of coming to let's agree to disagree or even a compromise. And I think one thing that was really a big deal for me is realizing that I am not in control of other people's feelings. So if I were to say something that offended you, it's not my fault that it offended you because you decide what upsets you. And I really, really like that because I feel more confident in being able to tell people what I think in a nice way. And then if it bothers, I'm like, well, I mean, that's really their problem, not mine that they didn't like what I had to say. That was like a weight off of my shoulders. Sarah, I so agree with you. This is the biggest perception, misperception, I think, that exists in our society. Most people do not understand the concept of free will. They think they do, but I suggest they don't. So many people think they actually can make someone think and feel and do. Or someone else can make them think or feel or do. But I suggest this is impossible. We think and feel and do from our five senses. What we see, hear, smell, taste, and touch. That's how we perceive what's going on around us. If we perceive the siren means tornado warning, 
then I'm naturally going to feel the emotion of fear. The tornado, the siren didn't make me feel fear. It was my perception of the siren. Whereas the person next to me can hear the same siren, perceived tornado, but have the emotion of excitement, wanting to go see a tornado. So when you think someone makes you think or feel, then you're going to put the responsibility, I think, on them to make you think or feel differently. And to turn that around, if you think you can make someone think or feel, then you're going to think it's your responsibility to make them think or feel differently, if it's negative, of course. But Sarah, you're correct. If someone thinks or feels angry at something you're saying, this is their problem. And people, how you deal with this problem is going to influence how much stress you have in your life. So if someone's walking around thinking they can make people, that other people make them think or feel, or they can make other people think or feel, they are going to have an inordinate amount of emotional stress that eventually will take its toll on the organs of the body, especially the volatile brain. That was a lot of think or feels. It's a good thing we're not playing like a, a drinking game. Every time you hear think or feel, take a shot. No. Okay, no, and I, that, I know that probably people need to go back and listen to that because I think that is a huge, huge thing, especially in relationships. And one thing, I'm a chiropractor. I am not a therapist. I will never pretend to have um, any type of knowledge like that. But... I do hear a lot of things uh, from people because in, in that setting, people will trust me and they will open up to me. And relationships are very, very complex. Every relationship with your parents, your spouse, your kids, and whatever. Do you think that the relationships that spouses have, you think that's why... Um, I don't want to say there's not a lot of happy marriages because there is, but you just don't see the 50 year anniversaries and you know, you don't see those long anniversaries anymore. Do you think that people think that they can change other people? Do you think people are just fed up? What, what do you think the relationship issue is there? And this is speculation. I'm assuming. Well, that is a broad question. It is. That, that triggers a lot of uh, different thoughts in my brain. Um, I think any two people coming together who are insecure is the seedling for a poor relationship. Because so, right, are, real question quick then. Do you think insecure people are attracted to, e to each other? Yes. Okay. Yes, I do. All right. So then, let's continue. Sorry. I just want to make sure that we have that clear. So if two people who are attracted together, not purposely because, oh, she looks insecure, I think I'll date her. No. Uh, <laughs> it's just the familiarity of how that person communicates that will influence a sense of familiarity or safety, even though it's insecurity. And in the world of insecurity, the couple is going to likely rely, rely too much upon each other for their emotional needs. Now, in the beginning, that makes for a very positive, emotionally intense relationship because both are going out of their way to meet each other's emotional needs until one of them is not getting their emotional needs met. 
this is when the relationship begins to break down. Because we'll say on her passive side, she's going to feel neglected and unloved. And on her aggressive side, she's going to become very angry, possessive, and controlling. And there goes the relationship. Then it, then it gets ugly. So I, I think there are way too many insecure relationships. Uh, and that's why they often don't have longevity. And if they get married, uh, divorce is typically within the first seven years of that marriage. If it lasts beyond that, it can be a pretty poor quality marriage. I'm not saying there aren't high quality marriages. I just think there are more poor quality marriages because of insecurity in our society. It's just embedded into our culture. And it has been for generations. And people... Do you think people are more likely just to stay in a bad relationship, to be in a relationship versus being alone due to insecurity? Yes. Yes. I suggest so. It has to do with the poor relationship one has with oneself. So if I have a poor relationship with myself, I'm my own worst enemy. And I'm not going to want to spend a lot of time with myself. So I'll get myself into a relationship to the point where I might begin to allow for disrespect, which can then morph into verbal abuse, physical abuse. But these individuals will keep coming back, not because they like the abuse, they're just afraid of the abandonment or of being alone. So I never thought about this until what you just said. When I was younger, when I mean, before marrying age. And there's people that are going to look at me and think, oh my gosh, someone married her because we all have our own, we all like different things and whatever. So I'm fine with that. Or I can't believe someone can be married to her. And I'm fine with people thinking that. But I used to see maybe people that were less desirable to me and, and think, well, they're married. I mean, if they're married, someone will marry me. And why, why I would even why I would even think about that at such a young age, but now being 39 and I'm fine. I mean, I'm nowhere interested in leaving the relationship I'm in, but I listen to other people talk about their relationships and I have flat out said, I would rather be alone than do that because I wouldn't put myself in that situation. And I'm happy to feel that way. If I'm insecure, I'm going to be, I'm going to be craving security. And if I'm craving security, my standards are going to be lower in the relationship I gravitate to. So if I start getting nurturing from that other individual, that will almost mean too much to me. I'll be quickly become dependent. And then when it starts getting disrespectful, I won't be able to leave because of my dependency in that relationship. Not only emotional dependency, but it could be financial dependency. Mm -hmm. It could be dependency because we share children together. Mm -hmm. There are lots of reasons that keep dysfunctional relationships together. What about people who think that every relationship they have will be doomed? <laughs> well, they might be right <laughs> if they're insecure. But that's their problem, right? That's not the other person that they're in a the relationship with. That's correct. It's okay. their problem. And that will, that will certainly influence conflict in the relationship. And in all future relationships, if I think every relationship I get into will be doomed, yes, it will become a self-fulfilling prophecy and I will make sure it gets doomed 
Because <laughs> I've heard people say that. Well, it doesn't matter. Every relationship I get in, it, it's just like this. And I'm thinking, well, if you know that's what it's like, why do you even get into it in the first place? Insecurity. I don't want to be alone. So I'd rather be in a doomed relationship than no relationship at all. Even though when I'm in the doomed relationship, I want out. But once I get out, I can't handle being alone. So I'll just get into another relationship rely too much upon that person to beat my emotional needs, which will doom the relationship. So it just becomes a pattern of relationship to relationship to relationship. Mm -hmm. That's why you have so many, you have multiple marriages. Uh, you have people who are in a bad marriage, they don't like it anymore, and so, so that can influence one to look for that nurturing elsewhere, and that can lead to an extramarital affair. But it, it's all about, I need, my emotional needs met, I don't know how to meet them, so I'm going to depend on someone or something to get my emotional needs met. And that's a, now we can talk about alcohol, mm -hmm. we can talk about drugs, we can talk about food, we can talk about gambling, we can talk about work, we can talk about sex, but it's all to get those emotional needs met that I don't know how to meet myself. Do a lot of the people who come through here and do uh, therapy on their own that are already in a relationship, do they often leave their relationship or do they um, demand a higher standard from their significant other? I don't know. I, um, I, my guess is they have, they, they have a higher standard for their spouse. The spouse at home who might be abusive um, simply learns that he or she is not, is not going to be tolerated anymore. And so the spouse at home just simply learns what I used to get away with, I can't get away with anymore. And so the, my client simply commands more respect, doesn't demand it, but commands it because he or she has outgrown so much of his or her insecurity. Mm -hmm. Since people come in here insecure, and that's not something that you just develop overnight. It's likely something that you were raised around. How important do you think it is for people to take control of their own mental health so they don't do the same to their children? Well, I think it's their responsibility because, it, again, most people don't. Many people may realize they're insecure, but don't know how they're insecure. And so they pass it on to their children not intentionally, but unintentionally. And again, Sarah, it's that leap of, of reaching out, that triggers fear. Mm -hmm. That takes a lot of bravado to admit, I, I don't have my mental health act together. Mm -hmm. And so to reach out, it, that's quite a leap. So if someone doesn't know if they're insecure or not, is it safe to say, and without making any assumptions, if you as a person think you are never wrong and it is always someone else's fault, are you insecure? Yes, absolutely. You're so insecure that you cannot entertain someone having a different point of view than you. That's insecurity. Security, Sarah, is the willingness to entertain a different point of view than you but still defending your own point of view. An insecure person, it's their way or no way, my way or the highway, because they're too insecure to handle a different point of view. That triggers their insecurity, and that's when it can kind of get ugly uh, 
in a relationship. I think that this is huge for accountability for a person to be able to say, I was wrong. I didn't know that. Um, let me get back to, let me see what I can do because when, you know, some people will say you fake it until you make it, which might work for some people, but I honestly respect people more when they flat out just say, I was wrong. I screwed up. I did X, Y, and Z. Oh, that's called humility. Uh, I think most people lack humility. And when you grow up in a home where if you're wrong, you're stupid. If you're wrong, you're a bad person. Well, then in adulthood, you can't be wrong because you don't want to think of yourself as a bad person or stupid. So, again, so much of it is that years and years of influence by insecure parents that just gets absorbed into the child's personality. So uh, parents who recognize that they have insecurity, they maybe suffering from depression or anxiety and don't do anything about it, they're not exempting their children because children are under the influence of the parents' mental health. What would be one of the top things you would encourage people to do for their own mental health? Find somebody who's had therapy, good therapy so that you see you're not the only one. The most common mental illness I mentioned earlier is clinical depression. At any given time, 20 to 25% of the population of America is walking around clinically depressed. And only a very, very small percentage of them are seeking professional help. Therefore, you have a lot of miserable adults who are passing this misery on to their children. And that's just depression. I didn't even mention uh, the host of anxiety disorders. So you need to be proactive in your mental health, just like you should be in your physical health. Absolutely. And in here, I teach my clients how to be proactive. That I will agree with. So I appreciate Mike taking the time to spend with me today. And I hope it enlightened you on how you can get a grip on your own mental health, however that may be. I will put Mike's um, contact information. I will link it to this podcast in case you think that he could be of benefit to you. Thanks for listening to the Fast Lane with Sarah Jane podcast. If you like what you hear, share the podcast and hit the subscribe button so you get updates on all new episodes. And we truly love feedback, so ratings and reviews are appreciated.